0: Just a quick note before we begin, I realized partway through my recording of these episodes that I had been mispronouncing allegin. I'm actually looking at a sticky note right now that has it spelled out phonetically so I don't screw it up again. I think I previously was pronouncing it Allegan. It will likely not be the last time I screw up in this regard. I apologize in advance for any and all future mispronunciations. Now, remember that bag that I mentioned I might need to unpack at a later date? The one that involved Peter Piper being housed in a federal prison as a protection case stemming from him being a witness to a murder in 1980? I had flashes of him up on the witness stand somewhere pulling his, oh yes, your honor, no, your honor, bullshit, and manipulating his way through someone else's murder trial, with the result possibly being an innocent person getting convicted off his testimony. I'm happy to report that I now have a bit more information on that after a very broad FOIA request was returned with a quote of over $500, followed by a second FOIA request where I vastly narrowed the scope of my initial request. That boiled down to essentially one sentence that I resubmitted that went something along the lines of, I just want to know why Peter Piper was made a protection case in 1980, according to a Michigan State Police report. Sometimes you just have to get down to brass tacks. Well, that fishing expedition garnered me 61 pages, the first being a memo dated May 16, 1980. Mr. L.C. Utes, the Senior Director of Resident Services with the Michigan Department of Corrections, sent a memo to Warden Anderson at the facility in which Peter Piper was housed. Warden, we are considering this man for possible placement in Allegan County Jail custody. He is in protective custody as the result of, and then there is a big hunk redacted. I eventually figure most of it out based on the letters you're about to hear. Now back to the memo. He was interviewed by the parole board and a decision is forthcoming. His stay since 1966 has been checkered to say the very least, but apparently he is slowly coming around. He is 33 years of age, intact marriage, and a wife who is vitally interested in his welfare. He is well known to the Allegan County Sheriff's Department and particularly the undersheriff, Bob Hill, who has indicated they would just as soon take care of him at that facility. In view of the magnitude of the sentence, the length of the sentence, and other unsavory characteristics of his file, this will need your approval. I am lukewarm, but am willing on the basis of conversations I have had with the individual, his wife, and the elegant people on his behalf. Then there's a handwritten note below his signature that says, by attrition, we want to reduce county jail count for fiscal reasons. We may have to increase later, so this man being on an inactive waiting list is okay. This letter seems to support the news reports that Piper's incarceration behavior was sketchy at best until he learned he might get parole. Then he decided he was a changed man. But I sure would like to know what some of those unsavory characteristics were in his file. Unfortunately, I don't have five Benjamins laying around for the explicit purpose of satiating my curiosity. What I did get was a pretty clear picture of what was happening in the months leading up to, and right after, Detective Pratt got that call from the woman who said that Peter Piper had information from another jail inmate about the Thompson murders. You know, that story that he made up in an effort to get out of the federal prison system. Well, as it turns out, he'd been trying to do that for quite some time, mailing letters regularly to everyone from wardens, lawyers, his brother, administrators, and a couple women by the name of Amy and Donna, who were part of the cabal who'd gotten in touch with Detective Pratt in the first place. They would later lie to provide alibis for Piper's whereabouts on some of the nights he was assaulting the prostitutes in Grand Rapids. Piper trying to set up a fellow inmate, that wasn't even the last of it. It continued even after that. He spent a considerable amount of time lying and manipulating his own brother into thinking that he was the reason that Piper was in the federal prison in the first place, because he wanted him to start his own letter-writing campaign. The best part, though, is that the proof of him asking the man to lie was right there in his own letters. So the thing I learned is that the testimony Piper gave in court regarding a homicide case was that of a murder that had been committed inside Jackson Prison by another inmate. I will tell you that Jackson Prison was no joke, friends, and I can see why Piper would testify against his own mother if it meant getting the hell out of there from an article in the Times-Herald dated November 23, 1980. Crime is rampant within the walls of Jackson Prison. Inmates cower in fear of stabbings, reunited city street gangs, robberies, and beatings. While corrections officials claim they're getting the problem under control, ex-convicts and inmates insist that life in the world's largest walled institution is dangerous. Jackson was described at the time as a huge, sprawling factory complex, that was overcrowded and housed more than 5,700 of the state's most violent inmates. And that's where Peter Piper was when he became a cooperating witness for the state against at least one other inmate. And word about that got around fast. I'm sure he did it to get out of Jackson, but ironically, it landed him in federal prison custody, and that particular ploy backfired spectacularly. Once he got in, he couldn't get out. According to the state, it wasn't his choice anymore. He testified for the state, and now he had a target on his back. A Detroit Free Press article dated August 10, 1980, noted that at least 20 men had been stabbed that summer following an 18-month period that produced eight murders, which was far more than the usual one or two. The article's author, Sally Smith, wrote, They gathered like storm clouds in the hot, dusty north quadrant of Jackson Prison Yard. First two, then six, then ten and more. The word had passed from inmate to inmate like electric current. Some new talk was going on about the stabbings. At last count, almost two dozen men knifed over the past two months. Boredom broke, cutting prisoners loose from the gaming tables and the basketball court. With guarded curiosity, they sauntered toward a small group, where one inmate, a young angry man, dressed in state-issued blues and rough braids, tried to explain the violence to a visitor. It's money, man. It's just the money. In here, we're living exactly the same way we do on the streets. Dudes get themselves fucked borrowing money, gambling, running scams. Day comes when the man says, Where's my money? And the dude says, Don't have it, man, nothing, Phil. Well, what do you think's gonna happen to that dude? That dude's gonna get his hair sliced off. A month after the warden sent the letter to the Senior Director of Resident Services with the Michigan Department of Corrections about possibly moving him to a different facility, Peter Piper had three scheduled court appearance dates in June, September, and December, all of 1980. The September date is a transportation ticket showing that Piper had been transported to Jackson County Circuit Court. For June and December, I have copies of the actual Circuit Court summons, two separate dates to testify against someone or, more likely, some ones, given the seven months separating the two. All of these were for appearances in Jackson County Circuit Court at the behest of the state. Two of these say the charges were felonious assault, so he was a state's witness against another inmate or two who were on trial for assault. One has to wonder, given the proximity and time between when the warden made the plea for Piper, if these instances of being a cooperating witness were part of a larger quid pro quo. Like, I want out of Jackson Prison. What can I do to make that happen? Now, I'm not exactly sure what month and year Piper moved from federal custody as a result of that cooperation, but he did end up getting out because at some point he landed in Lake County Jail, where he was when he escaped in December of 1983. According to the press reports, he had been there for approximately 17 months prior to the escape, so it does seem as though he got that release he wanted from his first stint as a federal prisoner in 1980, only to escape a couple years later and end up back in the federal prison system. But now, with not only that old 1980 cooperating witness luggage weighing him down, but an escape charge on top of that. Then, after being arrested in 1985 for the prostitute assaults, when he had begun getting death threats over a newspaper article that got passed around the jail, he got tossed into protective custody again. By that time, his name was well known in the Michigan system by other inmates. There's no doubt about it. Piper was a problem inmate, though to hear him tell it, he'd never done a bad thing while in jail and everybody was lying about why he was in federal custody but I'll let you hear all that in Piper's own words. As far as context, this is a couple months before his talk with Detective Pratt, where he tried to pin the Thompson murders on a fellow inmate, and he's been in jail for about a year since he was arrested for the assaults on our heroes. September 17th, 1986, Dear Ray. I love and miss you more than you know. I just got a letter from Donna She said she talked to you on Monday, and you was going to do some checking to see what's going on. Ray, they're sending me to the worst prison in the U.S. It's just for troublemakers. I sent Donna a letter to send to you because I only had one stamp. Ray, I want nothing to do with these federal prisons. Please do whatever you have to do to get me back to the state prison. They can send me to Riverside like they was going to do or to Allegan County Jail. I have to go be a witness for Allegan County Jail in a lawsuit anyway. Call Bob Hill at the Allegan County Jail. He said he would take me back there. Ray, when you had that meeting with Robert Brown, you should have come and talked to me before the meeting. Because remember after the meeting, you came to the jail and told me what they said? I told you then I did not want to come to federal prison and I could go back to Allegheny and you said you'd check on it. Roy, I'm telling you now, if I have to stay here, I'll stop eating and I'll die. I feel like I'm having a nervous breakdown. I can't sleep. All the guards and inmates are asking me what I did to get sent to Marion, Illinois. The guard told me that's the end of the line for all the troublemakers. The guard said that's where all the bad guys in the whole United States are sent to. Ray, I don't care what you have to do to get me back to the state prison system, but if you love me, just do it. Just tell him you didn't tell me about it till after you did it. I'll die here. Every place I go, I'm in chains. And I'm in the hole now. And I was at Milan, too. Please, Ray, please. I'll never ask you to do anything again. Just get me back to the state before it's too late. I don't know if I can call Donna Friday because I don't know if I'll be here in Terre Haute. I might leave here tomorrow. I'm not sure. Ray, if you cannot get me back to the state, I'm just going to give up. I'll have nothing to live for. I've already got my mind set that I have to die. You're my last hope. They even took my shoes. Please, Ray, do this. Because if you don't, I won't be around at Christmas time. Ray, I've never needed you like I need you now. Please help me. I hate to tell you all this, but I know you're the only one I can count on. My time does not change. It's still the same time, so please get me back to the state. Hurry. Please. P.S. Please don't let me down on this, or I won't be around to help you with your house. Love, your brother Pete. October 7th, 1986 Dear Ray, Hi. I love and miss you more than you know. I got both your letters, but I just got some stamps. Donna sent me some money. Roy, the counselor, came by today and said, they don't know where any of my stuff is. They don't have my watch or nothing. Roy, this place is hell, and please keep the two addresses I sent you in case something happens to me. Then you can get a hold of them people right away. Roy, they have people in Alligan with a lot more time than I have. I was there for two years, so I know. Just get me sent to Riverside, please. No, you cannot send me stamps. The only thing anyone can send me is a U.S. money order from the post office. Nothing else. So if anyone sent anything, they will get it back. I don't feel good, so this letter won't be long. I can't believe they took all my things and don't know where they are. Tell everybody I said hi. I love you and miss you a lot. Your brother Pete. This next letter is dated October 5th, 1986 and is sent to an attorney named Nancy Horgan in Carbondale, Illinois. Dear Nancy, Ronnie Brusino told you about me. I got here on September 11th, 1986. I seen the captain on September 12th. He told me he didn't know why I was sent here because all they send here are the troublemakers. So he did not know what to do with me and would have to wait for my file before he could do anything with me. On September 15th, they moved me to F-Unit in cell A-9. One of the counselors came to my cell on September 26th. He asked me to sign a paper saying I was a witness to a murder in 1980 in Jackson Prison in Michigan. I told him it wasn't true and I would not sign it, so he gave me a copy of it. I showed it to Ron. He said that's why I was here, but it's not true. On October 1986, two guards came to my cell. They asked me to go to the hospital and talk to the head doctor. I told them I didn't want to, so they left. On October 12, 1986, three guards came to my cell about 5.30 p.m. I asked where I was going, and they said, we don't know. As soon as we got in the hallway, they said, you're going to the I unit. You have done nothing wrong. The unit staff wants to talk to you. I asked about what. They said they didn't know. They took all my property and the report Ron gave me to get copies of, 32 pages so I could send it to my brother's girlfriend. I've been over here for three days now. Today, Unit Manager Brooks came to my cell. I told him I was getting along with everybody in F-Unit and was having or making no trouble. He said he knew that. Then he said, You cannot be around any other state inmate, and we have them in F-Unit, E-Unit, G-Unit, and all over. So we are investigating, and we may be sending you to some other federal prison. I told him I wanted to be sent back to Michigan prison. He asked how long I've been here. I told him I got here on September 11th. He said Michigan can call me back, but they can't send me back. I told him I don't want to be here. I want to go back to Michigan. When I was in Milan, they took all my property, court papers, pictures, gold watch, tennis shoes, 24 stamps, letters to lawyers, letters from judges. Now they tell me they don't know where it is. None of it. I took my pictures again, 34 of them. They gave me a paper from the lieutenant, Robert Parrish, saying, Placed an Administrative Detention Pending Review of Separation Needs by Unit Staff. They took that paper they asked me to sign, too. Nancy, my brother's lawyer, is friends with Robert Brown, Jr., who is the head of the Michigan Department of Corrections. His lawyer went and had a meeting with him about me, without even me knowing it, until it was over. I never asked to come here. I never signed any paper or nothing. The last minor ticket I had was in 1975 or 1976. The last major ticket I had was in 1966 in December. I'm not a troublemaker. You can call and ask the undersheriff of Allegan County in Michigan. His name is Robert Hill. I want you to please call my brother Roy at the Teamsters Union Local 551 in Grand Rapids. And would you call Donna? They'll both take a collect call from you. Please tell them about this place. I'm giving them both your number. They're trying to get me back to Michigan. If there's anything you can do to get me back to Michigan, they would be more than happy to pay for it. I really feel I'd be better off dead than to be in federal prison at all. Please help me, please. When you call Donna, you can call up to 12 at night, and she might have to call you back. Kathy will answer the phone. That's Donna's friend. They also told my brother this is one of the better places. He can tell you what he did to get me here, and Donna can tell you a whole lot, too. You can also get a hold of Jack Kresniak, the Detroit Free Press staff writer. He'd love a good story. Thank you very much. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Sincerely, Peter Piper. Piper mentioned that he had a paper that was given to him explaining his classification within the federal prison system. I've got a copy of it, and it's dated September 25, 1986. I assume I have this because someone at the prison had gotten so tired of explaining to him why he was there during his barrage of letters, they made a copy and had a guard shove it through the bars, hoping that he'd shut up. On the report, it states the rationale for his classification: Quote, "You are a state of Michigan offender who was accepted in the Federal Bureau of Prisons as a result of your cooperation with Michigan authorities as a prosecution witness for a murder that occurred in Jackson in 1980. Now, obviously, he knew he'd been a cooperating witness for the state. It's not like having to travel from prison to a courthouse in 1980 at least three times. just slipped his mind. No, Peter Piper was choosing to ignore that and pretend he was in federal prison because his brother had taken a meeting with someone trying to help him out. And then he repays him by sending him a series of manipulative letters. But it wasn't just his brother. Next, he sent a fusillade of letters to a woman by the name of Mary Benjamin, who was an executive aide in Michigan's Department of Correctional Facilities. October 20, 1986. Dear Mary, I want you to know I never asked to be sent to a federal prison. I have never wrote any letters asking to be sent to a federal prison. The only place I did ask to be sent was Riverside in Ionia. I am not responsible for being sent here. My brother Ray did whatever he did to get me sent here. I'm not sure what that was. But if you talk to him, I'm sure he'll tell you. Mary, I'm locked in a cell 23, sometimes 24 hours a day. I can only call home once a month for 10 minutes. I can't work here. I can't go to church. I can't go on to the yard every day. I eat in my cell every meal. This is about 800 miles from my family and friends. No one can come see me if they have been in any trouble at all. And if they drive 800 miles to see me, we have to visit on a phone looking at each other in a window. I cannot even give my family a hug or hold my grandkids on my lap. And that's what I look forward to on a visit. I haven't had a visit yet because it's too far. My mother's in her 70s and can't drive that far and I really don't think she has much time left. When I go to take a shower, they handcuff me behind my back. And every time I come out of my cell to see anyone, I'm handcuffed behind my back at all times. I have some lawyers working on my case and I'll be going back to court and my lawyer can't drive here because it's too far and they're court appointed. I need contact with my lawyer bad. Enclosed you'll find a copy of a report dated October 12, 1986. They have me in the hole. On October 17th, Lieutenant Lee Greeniger and two guards bring me to this office from my cell. When I got there, Unit Manager Brooks was also there. They all said they don't know why Michigan sent me here and I can't be around any other state inmates at all. So they're going to keep me in the hole while they investigate and see why Michigan sent me here. I asked the lieutenant if he'd put in a request to send me back to Michigan. He said he would. They both told me that I haven't done anything wrong, but they have to keep me in the hole because they don't know why or understand why Michigan sent me here. They gave me a paper saying I was a witness in a murder in Jackson Prison in 1980. But if you'll please check my file, you will see that I have never been a witness in a murder at all. I was not a troublemaker in Michigan prisons. You can call here and talk to the lieutenant or the unit manager. Ask them about what I told you they just said. Feel like I'm losing my mind laying in this cell. I want to be sent back to Michigan at Riverside in Ionia, where they was going to send me before I came here. Thank you for your time and anything you can do to help me. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Peter Piper. Two weeks later, on November 4th, 1986, another letter from Mary, and their first couple of sentences are redacted. Then, if you'll look at the pre-sentence investigation report, dated six thirteen eighty-six by Agent Paul Schutt, it's in his report on page two. I don't know how or where he got it from, but it's not true. My prison file will tell you the same thing. Mary, I have a girlfriend named Donna. She's 42 years old, and we have known each other since we was kids. Donna's very special to me, and I am to her. We plan on getting married soon, and we have some very beautiful grandkids that I love very much, and they love me just as much. Mary, Donna, and my grandkids are my whole life, but this is too far for her to bring our grandkids to see me. Mary, it's very lonely in here, and I hurt more than you will ever know. I know I must be punished, but must I go without seeing the most important people in my life? Donna and our grandkids are the only thing that keep me going. Without them, I'll have nothing to live for. Donna works five days a week, and she's a wonderful, kind, and understanding person. But she doesn't have the money to drive this far, so the only way I'll get to visit is if I'm back in Michigan. I know this isn't your fault, but I'm praying you'll help me with this, because without them, life has no meaning to me. Mary, Unit Manager Jefferson came to my cell tonight. I told him about the two letters I wrote to you. I even showed him them. He told me they put in a transfer to send me to another federal prison. He said he doesn't think the federal prison system's going to ask Michigan to take me back. I told him what the captain told me, and he said he didn't know why the captain told me that. Peter Piper blah blah blahed a little more, and all I could think of was that quote from the movie The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Oh, for goodness sakes, get down off that crucifix. Someone needs the wood. I imagine that this next letter typed and sent to his brother Ray on a Department of Corrections letterhead was the reason Peter Piper ended up resorting to Plan B, which was setting up his next cellmate. November 25th, 1986. Dear Mr. Ray Piper, Your recent letters have been received in this office regarding your brother Peter. I have spent a great deal of time researching Peter's case and find that it is true that he was a prosecution witness against another prisoner regarding an assault. I have discussed your brother's case with Deputy Director Bolden, and he feels that we cannot provide him the safety that he would need here in the Michigan prison system. We will review his case in a year. I'm sorry I cannot give you a more favorable reply, but you and your brother will have to live with our decision. Sincerely, Department of Corrections, signed Mary Benjamin executive aide with the Bureau of Correctional Facilities. On the same day that Roy got his letter, Peter Piper got his own from Mary Benjamin that said, in part, I have thoroughly reviewed your case and find that you were in fact subpoenaed to testify in... Redacted. Back in 1980. Further, when reviewing the Michigan State Police Report, you advised Detective Sergeant Jerry Boyer that... Big, big hunk redacted. Further, while you were in protective custody as the result of your information against... Redacted. Mr. Utes, Director of Resident Services at the State Prison of Southern Michigan, worked out your placement in the Allegan County Jail. I have discussed your case with Deputy Director Bolden, and he concurs with me that you are properly placed in the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. We just do not feel we can provide you the type of protection that you would need. However, if you desire, I will review your case in a year. I am sorry I could not give you a more favorable response. You know, Piper was such a lying smartass. What Mary should have done was told him that she would be happy to invite the state's lawyers that he testified for over to his jail for a chat to refresh his memory about being a state's witness, let him stand out in the yard chatting to the folks that he narked to while the other inmates looked on. I have to give him credit. He spent the next few months while being transferred from one federal prison to another, working on Plan B, trying to figure out a way to pin the double murder, which he had yet to even be associated with, on someone else, and use that to try and leverage his way out of the federal prison system. Clearly he was desperate, because he put a bullseye right on his head unnecessarily. They weren't even sniffing at him for those double murders until he farted in their direction. Four months after, Mary Benjamin gave him the letter equivalent of no soup for you. On March eighteenth, 1987, Detective Pratt received that call from the woman who had information provided to her by Peter Piper about the alleged cellmate who told him about killing the Thompsons. I now know that that woman is Amy Galapoo, who was the mother of Donna Lutkus, the woman who Piper keeps talking about in his letters. Donna and her brother, the person Detective Pratt was told the letters had originally come to, were both listed on the paperwork, for the release of his car from the impound by the Grand Rapids police when he was taken into custody back in 1985. Amy and Donna would both later lie to help alibi him. The same day that Detective Pratt got his call from Amy, Peter Piper wrote four more letters. One was to a man named Jim McCloskey, who was apparently the news and public affairs director at a local radio station at the time. Another was to an attorney out of Grand Rapids named James Rink. A third was to a woman named Barbara Levin, an administrator with the appellate-assigned counsel system in Lansing. And the fourth, bless her heart, went to Mary Benjamin, who I'm guessing thought that she had safely tucked that hemorrhoid back in, having not heard from Piper, in a couple months. A few things stick out with this second salvo of letters. First, he had clearly paid a visit to the law library at the prison or got himself a law book from which he would begin to copy in all caps which brings us to the second thing a sense of urgency that he had decided was important to impart in all future letters mostly in all caps to mr mccloskey he repeated his lies about his troubles with the federal prison system how he thought he ended up there due to something his brother did and then he began to insist that he was being deprived of a fair and equal opportunity for his appeal he insisted that not a single person to which he had been writing for help cared about his welfare or his rights. He noted that his brother had written to Mary Benjamin in order to rectify his mistake, but, quote, Thus far, nothing has been accomplished in my endeavors with Mary. The correspondence to Mr. James Rink, who was apparently his court-appointed attorney for his appeals, is noteworthy for its chuckle factor. Dear Mr. Rink, enclosed you will find copies of letters to judge robert benson and mary benjamin i called you on march 5th 1987 at 5:28 p.m you answered the phone and when the operator said it is pete piper calling collect will you take the call i heard you say no not really then the operator told me you did not want me calling you again i told her i am still going to call him again then the operator told me if i called you again i will get into trouble Mr. Rink, if the court or the county will not pay for my phone calls or for you to come visit me, then how will we discuss my very important appeal? Why don't you get me moved back to the Michigan prison system so I can get a fair appeal? It's at this point that I realize why he decided to appeal the convictions of the prostitute assaults in the first place. He knew it would temporarily get him back into town for court, but he would also be able to use it as an excuse to do what he did in paragraph two of this delightful letter, which, by the way, is in all caps. Quote By refusing my phone calls, this is denying my Sixth Amendment right to effective counsel, because this is the only way I can talk to you. And as far as my transfer goes, Lawman v. Perrin F. Sup. 21 Cr. L. 2500 from 1977 recognized an exception where the transfer denies access to the court. Obviously, my being in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, is doing just that, by precluding me from conferring with you during this very crucial appellate time. Okay, so someone made a friend in the law library because there is absolutely no way that Peter Piper came up with the phrase during this very crucial appellate time all on his own. Anyway, he goes on to tell this lawyer about an inmate that got a newspaper article about him from a family member. This was the Grand Rapids press Story from March 1st, 1987, that detailed his prior rape conviction and assault on Mary. He complains of being put in administrative detention and then says, again in all caps, Now Captain William told me on March 16th that I will be sent to some other federal prison farther away yet. Are you going to file a habeas corpus to get me back to the Michigan prison system? Have you talked to Mary Benjamin yet? Then... He tells his lawyer that he is sending everyone on his list copies of this letter so that they will all know Piper had written to him. He pretty much repeats everything that he has already said, to everyone else, in the previous letters, now to the appellate-assigned counsel administrator, adding that, quote, this is a very critical time for my appeals. He adds a little tale about how one of his lawyers in the matter with the prostitutes had his office send threatening letters to Donna, her brother, and Amy, saying that he was going to sue them if they did not pay $12,866.80 that was owed to him for taking Piper's case. Piper argues that this is a conflict of interest because that lawyer, Mr. Hanel, was allegedly thick as thieves with Mr. Rink, the current lawyer who, if you recall, didn't really want to take his calls. Finally, Piper sent copies of all the previous letters to Mary Benjamin, our long-suffering aide at the Bureau of Correctional Facilities. He outlined in detail a story about another Michigan prisoner who did time in the Allegan County Jail where Piper was housed for a couple years. He says, So now, name redacted, thinks he knows everything about my cases. Then he names another inmate, citing the same complaint. Quote, None of these guys like anyone who is in prison for a sex charge. All the guys that was talking to me won't even talk to me now. Then, he suggests that if something happens to him, it's because nobody is taking him seriously. Please, Mary, he begs. Move me out of this federal prison system before it's too late. The transit paperwork, when he was moved to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, had a couple interesting notes. First, it listed on August 20, 1965, simple assault on his criminal history list which would have occurred just shy of his 18th birthday and about seven months before his rape and assault on Mary. I high-fived my gut instinct when I read that because I was certain that Piper had a juvenile record even before I could verify it. In the remarks section of that paper, it reads, Piper is a 39-year-old state of Michigan border case serving a life term on charges of rape, escape, and possession of firearms. He has been in federal custody since September 18, 1986, Piper has not been a problem case. He is in good health. He became an unverified protection case at Lewisburg. He is legally sophisticated. I'd like to say that they were playing it fast and loose with the word sophisticated when it came to Piper, but what they mean is that while he might not be the brightest bulb in the box, he knows just enough to figure out how to manipulate the law for things like appealing his cases for the specific purpose of getting moved out of state, even if only temporarily. I'd call Peter Piper cunning. You don't need to be brilliant to be crafty and full of guile. All you need is a dollop of narcissism, and in Peter Piper's case, nothing left to lose. Manipulators can sniff out people who are willing to lie for them. Remember that line from the report that delighted me so? The vibrators are downstairs. The woman who had made what I felt was the oddest exclamation in the entire report was Peter Piper's sister. He'd been living with her in Grand Rapids since January of 1985 and spending weekends with Donna, the girlfriend, who would later testify that Piper was sleeping beside her in her Hess Lake home in Newego, Michigan, the night Loretta was attacked. She said that Piper stayed at her home from November 15th to the 19th, conveniently the exact days between which he had attacked multiple women. Fortunately, there was plenty of evidence of his actions during that time, including the shirt that he had worn with the rip that Loretta made with her utility knife before she fell out of his car and he sped away. You see, all of our hero's statements were corroborated by evidence. One was able to describe the vibrator that the police then went on to find in his room, along with a gun and a pipe bomb. They also found the items in his car that Loretta and other women had described, including the flashlight and the coveralls that he had been wearing when he picked Loretta up on the motorcycle that night. I'm sure he lied to Donna and her family just like he lied about Mary and to law enforcement and the folks in charge of his federal prison custody, insisting that he had never testified when there was clear documentation to the contrary. Both Donna and Amy are now deceased, but I was able to reach out to Amy's granddaughter. She was one of the grandkids that Piper mentioned in his letters, and she did recall her mother bringing her to visit Piper in prison often traveling, to do so. I asked her how much her family knew about what he had already done during the two years he was escaped, given that his next crimes were all occurring while he was with her and her family. She said that she wasn't comfortable talking about it. Peter Piper was traveling all around the area at the time, Grand Rapids, Nuego, and places in between, stalking his prey for two years after he escaped and the people he surrounded himself with knew that he had escaped from jail because he himself told prison officials that he had known Donna since they were young. They knew it, and they continued to lie for him. These same people participated in the letter scam, specifically created to try and set up his cellmate to get out of federal prison, which is where he was housed because he spent a lot of time in his early prison days testifying against other inmates so that he could get moved to an environment that better suited his needs. I find myself wondering if any one of them picked Peter Piper up after he killed the Thompsons. By his account, he left his car at Kmart in Cadillac and had ridden with Richard and Alita in their truck to the remote property where he killed them. That is about 20 miles by my calculation and a whole lot of area to travel on foot. I think it's more likely that he called someone from a payphone or a store somewhere and one of the people who were supplying him with vehicles and food and clothing and shelter all that time came and picked him up. The reality is, Peter Piper is the type who will look you straight in the eye and smile while he lies to you. Then he'll go out later and rape someone, beat them to death, and convince you to alibi him while he stands in front of you wearing a blood-spattered shirt. In the end, though, it turns out that Peter Piper spent a great deal of time trying to get out of being housed with people who were just like him. I am lost And still not found in the of a storm I am weary flashes of him up on the witness stand somewhere, pulling his... Seriously, the birds are like off the chain today. Well, I couldn't just let it go. I needed to do my due diligence and see what I could find out. Oh, my God. I am happy to report that Oh my god. <clears throat> <sighs> Goddamn chickens.